On April 16, 1512, Martin Luther was told to appear the following day before the Diet of Worms. Martin Luther was on trial for his writings that questioned the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church's practices. Luther had begun to proclaim the great doctrines of the Reformation, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. And the Pope would have nothing to do with this. He wanted Luther and his teachings on Scripture condemned. Close to a hundred years before Luther, another man had made a similar stand, but that man had been quickly snuffed out. John Huss had been burned at the stake after a similar trial in 1415. Now Martin Luther was on trial. How would he respond? Martin Luther was asked if a collection of books was his and if he was ready to revoke the heresies. Martin Luther asked for more time for a proper response. He was given until the next day at 4 p.m. So how did Martin Luther respond to this excruciating circumstance? Luther stated later that he had prayed for many hours and consulted friends before giving his defense. So what happened? Luther stepped up in front of the packed room of people. Many of them were looking for any reason to have Luther killed. But Luther boldly stated, with full trust in his God, Quote, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. End quote. With this, Martin Luther was victorious. No, he was not accepted by those who hated him, but he was victorious because he stood firmly for the truth in the midst of enormous pressure. Martin Luther was victorious in his trial, not because his life was spared. Martin Luther was victorious because he exalted Christ through the trial. How did he do this? I would suggest his victory came through prayer and trust in the sovereign Lord. Our passage today describes believers responding to a very difficult circumstance, just like Martin Luther did 1,500 years later. Martin Luther knew the same God as the apostles. He was committed to prayer and trust in the sovereign Lord. And God glorified himself through Martin Luther, just like he did in the disciples revealed in our passage in Acts chapter 4. Beloved, we can learn a lot from this passage concerning how we should deal with difficult circumstances and difficult people. Remember the setting for Acts chapter 4. We've already seen back in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 3, a miracle happened. A lame man was healed who had been lame for 40 plus years. Then, in response, Peter gives an amazing sermon to explain what had happened and gives all credit to the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 11 to 26 in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, Verses 1 to 4, there was a response to this healing and sermon. It was divided. Many believed. However, the vast majority of the people rejected. In fact, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish people, rejected the message altogether. And there was a trial called after the arrest the trial was found in verses 5 through 20. We talked about that last time we were in Acts. So Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, the most powerful governing body amongst the Jewish people, with all the rich and famous and powerful people standing before him and before them. 
This would be similar to us standing before the Senate or a joint session of the House and the Senate together and having to give a defense of the hope that lies within us. What did they do? These two untrained, uneducated fishermen stood up and boldly proclaimed the gospel. Oh, sends shivers down our back, doesn't it? The glory of our God being exalted in a moment of trial. Then in verses 18 to 21, we see chapter 4 of Acts. There was a threat. They were commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They were threatened and released. In our passage today, we see the disciples' response to these threats. These were real threats. They were threats. If you do not stop, there will be consequences. How did they respond to these threats? And how do we respond to threats of persecution? How do we respond to trials? It's very similar. We must respond exactly the way they responded. The same way. Today we see in our passage how we should respond like Martin Luther. We will see how we should respond like the apostles. We see, I went through all these backgrounds. We see that slaves of Christ persevere in the world through prayer and trust in their sovereign master. Slaves of Christ persevere in the world through prayer and trust in their sovereign master. The passage breaks down into three features of prayer and trust in the Lord. First, there's the circumstances of prayer and trust, the substance of prayer and trust, and the results of prayer and trust. So let's examine these three features of prayer and trust in the midst of a horrible circumstance or a difficult circumstance. Let's start with the circumstances of prayer and trust. We see the circumstances in verses 23 to the beginning of 24. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said. What we see here is the perfect setting of an excellent prayer time. Often some of our greatest prayer times and our greatest demonstrations of faith in God are revealed when the circumstances are the hardest. Ladies and gentlemen, the refiner's fire produces excellent prayers. When God puts us in that crucible and begins to allow the circumstances to mold us and make us, that's when we cry out to God. The crucible of trials produces the glow of genuine faith. Look at these circumstances closer. The apostle John and Peter were released, is what it says. There's a double emphasis on the Sanhedrin's authority to release the men. It's repeated in 21, at the beginning of verse 21, and then also again here in verse 23. At first glance, we might think the disciples were tempted to doubt who was really in control. But in fact, the opposite is true. John and Peter knew who was in control of the Sanhedrin. They saw this as an opportunity to trust and pursue their Lord. In fact, they went to the others ready to share their circumstances. As we will see, the apostles and disciples knew something that Sanhedrin did not know and understand. They knew even the Sanhedrin's evil ways were under the sovereign hand of God. Very important to remember. Yes, the Sanhedrin had released them, but this was only because God was working to glorify himself through the prayer and trust of his people. That's exactly what was going to happen. Oh, so often we think the world is winning and Satan is winning. Wrong answer. God's in control. And that's what we see in this passage. 
Notice more details of this setting for prayer and trust. It went to their own. Now, literally, companions there is added. It's, it, could, it should be translated, they went to their own, and that's it. The point here is, is that Peter and John went to those who were a part of the church. They responded to the threats with fellowship with those who knew and trusted in the Lord, the only wise God. They went to their own fellow believers and followers of Christ. This is a pattern repeated throughout the Bible, isn't it? When faced with trials, when faced with difficulties, where do we flee? Where do we go? We go to one another. We go to our own. Illustrate, we could, this is illustrated very well in Daniel, right? When Daniel learned of the threat to kill all the wise men in Babylon, what did he do? He went to his house and informed his friends. You know, those friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven. That's what it says in Daniel chapter 2. This is similar to John and Peter upon receiving the threat. They went to their own. They came together. There are some differences between Daniel and the apostles' circumstances, but two things are similar. In the midst of a trial, we must pursue our fellow believers. We must go to our own. And seek the Lord together, second. Oh, please, ladies and gentlemen. Don't do what the enemy wants you to do. Don't flee. Don't get by yourself. Go to your brothers and sisters. This is the exact opposite of what the world and Satan would want us to do. The world says this when you face a difficulty. Cower and hide. Don't share your problems or trials because no one can really help you. That's what it says. But beloved, listen to me. That's why there's a body of people. God uses us to depend and lean on one another and for us to seek the Lord together. You ask me, why is it so crucial to be a part of a church? The answer is simple. We need prayer partners who trust in our Lord. We are not made to go it alone. Even the apostles knew this. They went to their own. They went to their companions. We're supposed to go to our brothers and sisters in the Lord and seek the Lord together. This is what Peter and John did after receiving the threats and being released. Where do you go? Where do you go when you have difficulties or trials? Don't go and be by yourself. Flee or run to the church. Run to us. And all of us will seek the Lord together. Notice John and Peter shared their trial. They shared their, their trial. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. This means that they said no less than everything we have recorded in Acts 4, 1 to 22. I can only imagine how thrilled Peter was as he told of his response. How he responded totally different to this trial compared to the previous response just weeks earlier when he had denied the Lord three times. This time... The uneducated, untrained fisherman had stepped up and boldly stood for Christ. And you can imagine just how excited Peter was. God had empowered him and emboldened him to proclaim the truth. And what did he want to do? He wanted to share it with his brothers and sisters. Look what God has done. Peter probably reflected on how Jesus had promised to give them words when they were dragged before the courts. He probably brought that up. And then he said, and now look, we did it. How did we do this? The Spirit worked through us and we stood boldly for the truth. Man, can you imagine the worship service? That's why they break out in prayer. They're worshiping God. Oh, beloved, when we face our trials, run to the body so that we can seek the king together and worship him i know y'all are all I, I there are moments when and and by no means i want this to happen again 
but there are moments when I reflect back on you know, what we went through with Luke a couple months ago. That was an amazing time for the body of uh, this body. It's just wow. Just seeing all of us come together and seek the Lord together. I'm thinking of Hope Bible right now. This could be a time for them. I pray for them, okay? That they as a body will come together and seek the sovereign Lord and trust Him. No matter what the circumstances are. No matter what the outcome is. Oh, beloved, we need the Lord all the time. I'm convinced that what Peter and John were going through, this was not an ominous time for them. I think the apostles were emboldened and probably invigorated, yet it was also serious. One of the reasons why I think this was the mood was because, and it, that it was very positive, is because of Acts 5. Look over at Acts 5 again. And Acts 5, verse 40. In Acts 5, verse 40 and 41, after later they're taken and arrested, look what happens. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. Oh, it's there again. And they released them. They flogged them and then released them. So they, they cowered this time and said, Lo, that's enough. I'm out of here. No, look at verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. That's answered prayer. That's answering the prayer of chapter 4. Embolden us. Help us to see things the way you see things. Beloved, the circumstances were intense in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And for lack of that, 6, 7, and 8. The threat is, was real. But the trust and confidence in God was big. The apostles had a big view of God's sovereignty. They trusted him whether they were beaten or killed. They knew God was in control. The circumstances revealed their trust. But also notice, trust in the Lord drove them to pray. They were committed to their responsibility to pray. Notice the final details of the circumstances of prayer and trust. We see one united prayer. And again, I want to just make something very clear. We see the sovereignty of God in this section probably greater than any so far in Acts, it's huge, but we've seen it all along, haven't we? God's in control of all things. You know, we've seen it over and over. In this section, we see it a lot, right? But that does not change the fact that they prayed. They prayed. Oh, oh, I've heard this so often. People that believe in a big view of God, the sovereignty of God, their prayer lives are horrible. Why? I would argue the reason why is because they've gotten out of balance. They've gotten a wrong understanding that human responsibility works along with God's sovereignty. Both are true. Oh, I think way too many of us, even in this room, might fall into the trap of thinking God is sovereign, so I really don't need to pray. What? No, see, God has sovereignly ordained for our prayers to move Him. It's the means as well as the end. And they knew this. Ladies and gentlemen, they sought the Lord in prayer. Even though they knew God was sovereign. When theologians said, you can tell a lot about a person's walk with the Lord by their prayer life. It reflects where our heart is. What do we have here? We have a unity within the body all seeking the Lord in prayer. In verse 24 it says, And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, What we see here is the disciples respond with petition. The unity of their prayer is doubly emphasized in this passage. Their voices, it says right there, their voices to God, their voices is literally in the Greek a singular. It should be translated... They lifted their voice to God. One singular. 
Why singular? Well, it's doubly emphasized in the second part. To God with one accord. It's doubly emphasized. One body, all having the same focus and commitment. Again, as the fire of the trial began to grow, the unity of the faith and commitment of the people was solidified. Oh, this is so important. Listen closely. Oh, this is good. Fire, trials, difficulties produce unity within the body as we seek our Lord. Oh, this is, this is good. We see that church that seemed to have everything in common. They were all working together. The trials come and they're unified more. And they come together in one accord. Notice also it says, they, and they lifted their voices to God with one accord. The one mind, one purpose, one focus. The glory of God. That's what was on display. As we will see, they did not pray for their safety. They did not pray their enemies would be destroyed. They prayed that they would boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. And that God would confirm that name with his display of glory through signs and wonders. Beloved, these are the perfect circumstances for wonderful prayer times and awesome displays of trust. When committed disciples of Christ seek fellowship with one another and share the grace of God we are experiencing in trials, we're provoked together to seek the Lord. And they seek the Lord together with one mind, one purpose, one Lord in their focus. This is why the Apostle Paul can talk about this unity in, in Ephesians chapter 4. The body comes together and we seek God together and our focus is on the same thing. We pray together. Oh, so listen. You see why the world or Satan would have us flee and run to some quiet, secluded place? When we hit a trial, why? So we wouldn't come together. So we wouldn't seek the Lord together. Oh, this applies. The implications of this are unbelievable. It's, it's, it, it, it's, out, it's so far beyond our reach. Uh, let me give you one implication. Even when you sin, ladies and gentlemen, even when you sin, the tendency is to isolate yourself. To run, to hide. The opposite is true. Lay it out there to the Lord. And then get brothers and sisters together. Come together in one accord. I want to kill this. It's the same thing in all circumstances. Come together. When we hit a trial, oh man, that hospital room, right? That cafeteria where we all came together and we prayed for Luke. That was awesome, right? I want to petition you on one, just a new one. Please, we, I've asked this before. Pray for my children. Pray for your pastor to be a good pastor and a good shepherd to his children. Please, will you pray for me? Pray for them. Pray for the families in this church. One accord. God to be glorified, right? Pray for the single people to find their satisfaction in Christ alone until if God decides to give them a spouse. Or if he doesn't, that's okay too. Oh, beloved. When they hit a trial, they came together in one accord. We need to do that all the time too, don't we? Unified pursuit of God is one of the times God is most glorified. Yet the unity is not in, done in a doctrinal vacuum. What do I mean by that? Listen, unity it, for just the sake of unity is not what I'm talking about here. We don't come together and say, oh, let's just all get together and agree no matter what. Okay, You can believe what you want to believe and you can believe whatever you want to believe. Let's get together. That's not the one accord here. <laughs> the one accord they're talking about here is a unity in the gospel. The glorious truth of the gospel. God being honored. God being exalted. 
That's the unity. And they come together. The truth of the person and work of Jesus is the unifying truth. This is the one accord they sought. The glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this as we go along. So the first element of prayer and trust is the circumstances or setting of prayer and trust. Notice next, the substance of prayer and trust. The substance of prayer and trust. Oh, this is a beautiful prayer. Let's look at it again. O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of the Father David your servant said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly... For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of of your holy servant, Jesus. We see in these verses the content or the expression or the substance of prayer and trust as a result of this trial. This is yet another amazing prayer recorded in Scripture. It gives us a fantastic example of biblical prayer. One thing is especially striking to me about this prayer. The economy of words used in this prayer. There are no words wasted. What I mean is, in very few words, a theology book is revealed in this one prayer. You could formulate a theology of prayer based on this prayer alone, and it would be pretty concise. And yet, very few words are used. We see several features here about biblical prayer and trust. In this prayer, notice first, the prayer was addressed to the sovereign master, the Lord. Now, in the Greek, this is not the normal word used for Lord throughout most of the New Testament. The Greek word used emphasizes the absolute authority of God. It also points to the slave-master relationship that characterizes the New Covenant language. This title, Lord, was used often to describe a master who was in total control of his slaves. Again, for someone facing the ruling body for their people and the body was threatening them with huge consequences, a master-slave understanding of God is crucial. Oh, please get this. This is so important. Our awareness of God as our master and we as his slaves is so crucial when we face difficult circumstances. We must understand something. Again, if we think we are in control, or we have a right to come up with a way out of the trial, then we are headed and bound to fail and flee in fear. But if we know and hold on to the fact that our God is our sovereign master who has all authority, then we will abide under whatever he brings our way. The Sanhedrin threatened them and released them and would eventually have them beaten. But the one and only God was their sovereign, all-powerful master who was in complete control of the Sanhedrin. He was in control. Ladies and gentlemen, as Martin Luther said, the devil is God's little devil. He's in control of all things, including the devil. Nothing is outside of his hand. And the Sanhedrin isn't any different. Notice also the prayer acknowledged the master's creation. In verse 24 it says, It is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Beloved, I am convinced that if we truly understand and embrace God as our Creator, we will have no problem submitting to His sovereign plan 
even in trials. Listen to me. Why do we think we make a big deal here at our church and believe in six-day creation? I think it's a huge point. It's an, it's an attack on God's status as the creator. Look, the artist is free to do whatever he wants to do with his paintings. If he doesn't like it, he can chuck it. Right? The artist owns his artwork. He can do whatever he wants with it. And God made everything. He is the master artist. He is the great creator. He owns everything and he is in control of everything. You know, you read through the Psalms, you see this over and over and over and over. In the Psalms, the idea is is that God is sovereign. And then immediately it repeats with, he made everything. He made everything. He owns everything. He's Lord over everything. This is reality. This is a foundational truth for us that God owns it all. It's his. If God owns it, then he's the one we should seek in prayer. If God owns it all, then he is the one we must trust in always. God is not bound by his creation. He owns it and he runs it and he does what he wants with it. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Because it's his heavens and his earth. And God is in control. This is what they're saying. Do you understand? You hit, how many of you do a doctrine of, a, a doctrine of creation at a moment when you're in trials? Anybody go over the doctrine of God's creation when you're in a trial? Oh, let's stop. I got to think, God created the world in six days. Yes. Why? Because it just shows how powerful he is. And that he is, in, he is the all-powerful God. He owns it all and made it all. You understand if he can make the world in six days, there is no problem that we have that he can't handle. And on top of that, if he made it all in six days, and he did, it means he also is keeping it all together and holding it all together because otherwise it would not work. He's outside of his creation. And they appeal to that. The prayer appealed to the word of God too. Notice, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Here we see scripture is referenced in prayer and recited in prayer. Oh, beloved, get that. How many of you recite prayer, uh, scripture in your prayer? That's where we need to get, right? Not God is good, God is great, let us thank him for our food. Amen. Come on. Give me some depth, right? Quoting scripture should permeate our souls as we speak to our creator. Counting on his promises. Proclaiming his promises. The disciples knew God wrote the Psalms by the Holy Spirit through the patriarch David. This is a quote from Psalm 2. The main theme of that psalm is God's response to those who oppose him and his anointed king. The prayer in Acts 4 picks up on the theme and carries it forward to Jesus, then applies it to the disciples' circumstances. It's very interesting how that is. The implications. The implication here for us is this. Listen. The importance of the word of God to a solid prayer life. Listen, oh, get this, folks. You want to pray well? You want to pray what honors God? You want to pray? Then memorize Scripture. Put the Word of God deep in your soul. And as we meditate and we ponder the glories of God revealed in the Word of God, it will flow from our soul as we pray and as we seek God. It's very important. You say, well, I can't memorize anything. I beg to differ. Most of you could quote, quote John 3.16 just fine. Beloved, start with the short verses. Jesus wept. Got it? You just memorized one. How does that fit? How does that fit, Mike? Okay, I got Jesus wept. Here's how it does. You ready? Oh, God, as we're praying in our crying, in our trial... 
You are the compassionate God who became man and wept with people. You know my pain. Do you see how that, just a proper understanding, changes the way you pray? Beloved, hide the word of God deep in your soul so that when you hit those moments, you pray as he would want us to pray. Beloved, the more we know and embrace the word of God, the better and more God-honoring our prayer life will be. So study, then pray, and trust the Lord. In fact, we see the prayer rehearsed in verse 25 It rehearsed the doctrine of Scripture. The doctrine of Scripture is obviously revealed in this passage. uh, Scripture's ultimate source is the Holy Spirit. Yet God wrote it through a man. We also see Scripture can reveal God's ordained will before it even happens. Through prophecy. Because this was prophetic psalm. It is a supernatural book. In prayer, we quote, quote Scripture... And we depend on Scripture because it is from God and it is the heart of God revealed. And that's exactly what these disciples in the early church did. Boy, we all want to copy. We all want to copy the things of the early church. Again, here's my little slam, my weekly slam on the continuationist debate. We all want to do the signs and wonders. How about praying like these people? I just want to pray like them. Well, that means then what? Memorize as much scripture as they had in their hearts. We need to put that deep in our soul. In fact, we see the prayer revealed the prophetic nature. Why did the, it says literally, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed one. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. How about that for verse 28? Isn't that great? Woo. Stick that one in your back pocket. God ordained it all. It's all part of his plan. Psalm 2 was a messianic psalm. It spoke first of the enemies of God coming against David. But it was primarily pointing forward to the coming king, the coming Christ, the anointed one, Jesus. King Jesus who would be rejected by the Gentile rulers, Herod and Pilate, and even his own people, the Israelites, those in in Jerusalem. And even though he was rejected, it was only accomplishing God's ultimate victory. Oh, this is glorious, ladies and gentlemen. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? Oh, this, is, this is shocking, we will see. This psalm revealed God's plan before it happened. Notice also the prayer focused on the sovereignty of God in light of persecution. Why did they rage? Why did the peoples devise vain things? Both of these questions assume the ignorance of the one saying it or doing it. Mankind is constantly taking their stand against God, but even in doing this, they're only doing what God sovereignly has determined for them to do. Now think about that for a second. You've got to stop. You've got to meditate. What they're basically saying, in effect, is the, they're getting angry. They're devising worthless, useless things, but all of that is part of God's plan. <laughs> Even that is part of God's plan. Do you understand? They were plotting the death of Jesus. They were plotting the death of Jesus. They had worthless rage. Yet God was going to be glorified through it. (laughs) And he was going to win victory through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. One commentator stated, Satan is loosed but he's on God's leash. God uses the world, the flesh, and the devil for his sovereign will. As Martin Luther stated, Satan, like I said, is God's little devil. God uses the devil and the world to exalt himself through his people's prayers and dependence upon God in the battle. 
But notice next, the prayer asks for the Lord's attention in their circumstance. There is a petition. Look at verse 29. Lord, take note of their threats. At first glance, we might be tempted to think that people are doubting God's vision. Do you not see it, Lord? But this could not be further from the truth, beloved. The people were, in fact, calling on God to act in accordance with what with what will bring the most glory to himself. That's the point. Take note of it, and now work in a way that brings you great glory. That's what he's going to talk about. Take note of our circumstance and use us in a way that will honor you most. That's what they're getting at. Notice, Lord, these wicked threats, they say. Now use them for your glory, Lord. Again, as we have said, God's sovereign plan does not mean we don't pray. The opposite is true. God's sovereignty requires us to pray. He is Lord, so we are ordained to call out to Him to move and to work in the circumstances. So call out to Him and call Him to take note of your circumstance and move for His glory. Do we think this way, ladies and gentlemen, naturally? When we hit that, uh, I was talking to the uh, Grace on Campus this week on Thursday about that passage or that concept of perseverance in trials, enduring under or abiding under difficulties. How do we respond when the pressure becomes great? When the world's trials and the difficulties come into our life, how do we respond? Here's what we do. You ready? Get me out from underneath this now. Our prayer is often, Lord, please help get me out of this. Right? Isn't that what we say? In this case, it is, Lord, see my circumstances. Now be glorified in them. Show yourself off where I am. Wow. That's different, isn't it? That's different. How can we have this kind of thinking? Answer, the gospel. See, as we understand that God has done the same thing in Christ, taken an impossible circumstance, what looked catastrophic, God incarnate, being killed, is turning it for his glory. We understand the gospel, then we pray different. We say, look at our circumstances and then we say, and grant your bond slaves, or your slaves, grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. Oh, do you see this, beloved? Look, it's amazing. It's great, isn't it? It was not grant that your enemies cease, nor was it grant that I'm rescued from these threats, nor was it get me out of here. That wasn't the prayer. Man, too many of us are just ready to throw down them imprecatory prayers, aren't we? On our enemies. We go back to the Psalms. I want to use them all the time. My boss is hurting me. Take them out, Lord. Humble those guys. Bring them to their knees, Lord. What? How about this? Grant that your slave may speak your word with all boldness. Oh, not get me out of here, but rather keep me through the trial and be glorified in me. Oh, how many times have we heard this? How well do we do? You've heard it from this pulpit, right? How well do we do? I mean, if we're really honest, how well do we do? How'd you do this last week? Anybody have a trial or difficulty this week? Did you say, get me out of it? Or did you say, get me through it? Did you say, get me out and stop this? Or let me show you off in this? Whew. Challenging, isn't it? They had, a big God, they had a big view of God, didn't they? So we see the prayer sought for divine enablement to boldly proclaim the word and grant that your 
slave may speak your word with all boldness. The prayer also sought God's confirmation of the message through signs and wonders. And again, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through me, the name of your through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Again, at first glance, we might say, "Well, why aren't we praying for miracles? Why aren't we praying for signs and wonders? Let's start today, all of us. Let's continue, right?" Well, they did. We'd miss the point if we did that. Because in fact, all these signs and wonders had purpose, especially this early church. The purpose was to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ and the message that was being given for the first time through the apostles and prophets. That's why later on we will see that they were granted, this prayer was answered. And the apostles did more miracles and signs, thus confirming what? The message of the gospel. We have no problem with that, ladies and gentlemen. We have the message of the gospel today. Let us proclaim it. And yes, we need the boldness. But no, we don't need the signs because it's already confirmed. You've got your Bible. <laughs> and anyway, I don't know about you guys, but all of those uh, word of faith people, sorry. It's not about the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's for sure. It's all about the one that's calling down the miracle and throwing his hand on somebody's forehead and knocking them down. Oh, beloved, it is about the exaltation of Jesus, and that's the whole point. Is that our prayer? Is that your prayer? My prayer is I want Jesus exalted, whatever that is. How about you? You want a great circumstance for that? It's trials. As Justin mentioned at the beginning, or while he was going through the music, he mentioned that. We don't often pray for trials, do we? But see, those are the times when Christ is most exalted. Oh, Lord, if you give me trials, just make sure that I exalt you through it the whole way. Because that's all that matters. The prayer ultimately sought the exaltation of Jesus. And God, ladies and gentlemen, responded. Notice the results of the prayer and trust in verse 31. This is beautiful, isn't it? And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Notice the results of the disciples' prayer and trust in the Lord. The Lord confirmed His presence with a miracle. And the miracle was that an earthquake happened, for lack of a better term. Something was shook. It reminds us so much of things like uh, Isaiah 6, where the threshold trembled at the voice. Or in Exodus, where on Mount Sinai, when God visited His people, there was a great earthquake. The Lord confirmed His presence with this miracle, we see. But ultimately, He was saying, in effect, I hear you, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I am going to show myself in you, off in you. I am going to use you. I hear your prayer. You are praying in accord with my predetermined plan. I'm going to show you off. I'm going to show myself off, is what the Lord would say. The Lord responded by empowering the believers. Look at that in the second half of 31. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. Oh, beloved, this is so crucial. Again, filled with the Holy Spirit is what? Controlled. In light of the Lord, the sovereign Lord relationship with His slaves... What does a slave ultimately want? He wants his master to be pleased and to be in control. Ooh, that one doesn't sound good. How many of us slaves want God to be in control of our heart? Me! I want that! I want to do exactly what he says every second of the day. Anybody else with me on that one? I'm a slave... 
I want my master to control me. Why? Because my master is good and righteous. And he only does what is good for me and for his glory. He only gives me commands that will help me. So take control of me. Use me. And that's what happened. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were controlled by God. And what does God want? And what does God do with his people? His people then stand up and what? Speak the word of God with boldness. We are controlled by him and we proclaim him. Throughout history, victory in difficult circumstances has been realized when the one true God is exalted through our various trials. Daniel and his friends trusted in the Lord and prayed and God was glorified. Martin Luther and his fellow believers trusted in the Lord and God was glorified. In all cases, the result of people that seek Him and trust in Him, God is glorified. So how must we respond to various trials? The answer, the exact same way. Trust and pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your your word. For it has shown us a glimpse of you. Oh Lord, help us to trust you. Steady our shaking knees. Calm our hearts that continue to worry. Help us to turn to you and trust in you and lean not on our own understandings, but acknowledge you in all of our ways, knowing that you will direct our path. Oh, Father, we trust you. We need you. We long for you to be glorified no matter what our circumstances are. From the most mundane things to the most difficult of trials, God, may you be exalted in all that we do. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.